Amen. Amen. What a powerful name. The name that breaks every chain and sets us free. Thank you, Lord. All right, go ahead and take your seats, everyone. Thanks heaps, guys. Good morning. Packed house this morning. This is cool. My name's Rob. If you haven't met me before, it's Rob if you have met me before too. Um, I'm going to be... As Tim said, starting off our series on the book of James, I love when we get to do this, dive into a book and just pull out what God is speaking to us um, about. And the good thing about the book of James is it's quite short. Uh, Hopefully, some of you saw the posts that we were going to be doing this series coming up, and you might have had a look and a read through it this week. You can read through the whole book of James in less than 20 minutes. Um, you can listen to it on the audio Bible on your, you know, your version Bible app. I, I listened to it on the way home from soccer yesterday again, and I think it was 18 minutes. That was the whole thing, right? And we can listen through this book and, and just try and devour it. And I think it's really important that we do that with Scripture. We can get really used to hearing it in little lines, bits and pieces here and there. But sometimes we've got to come at it at a run. Read it. It's a letter. Read, read it in, in full as they would have heard it um, and, and, and take it in that way. I think that's really important. So there's five chapters in James. We're going to be looking at this series over the next five weeks. So obviously kind of looking at, at one chapter each week, but we can't pull out everything from those. So we're going to be kind of looking at key themes in each one and pulling those out. But really the, the most important thing is that... Um, that God is speaking to you through it as you read it. And different things will be highlighted for you, perhaps through your week and different stuff like that. So um, as Tim said, I'm going to overview James a bit today and then dive into one aspect of chapter one, which is this theme of trials and temptations. You might think of, you know, in the old hymn, have we triumphs and uh, trials and temptations. Um, And uh, let's see, um, what a friend we have in Jesus. And and that's kind of where it was in, in my head. So James is this, this little book that appears towards the back of your Bible in your New Testament. You've got the Gospels and Acts. Then you've got this whole series of letters by Paul. Uh, and then we've got what's called the general epistles or the general letters. And James is in that section there. And then we've got Revelation at the end. So we're, we're quite close to the end. And it's a bit different to some of the other New Testament letters Because unlike most of Paul's, where they're written to a a really specific context and perhaps answering some really specific questions that people had, the book of James kind of covers a huge amount of ground. It's almost like a best of of James's teaching and different things that come like that. So it's kind of part sermon, part exhortation, part letter, and it's pretty full on. Like James doesn't Nancy round with a little bit of greeting and a little bit of, wow, I pray for you guys for this and you've been doing a really good job of this. He's just like, boom. I'm straight into it. Do this. Let's go this way. And it's, it's one of the good things about it for us as, as readers and listeners, you actually don't need to have a whole lot of context and backstory and stuff to, like, to read it and have it apply really quickly to your life. It's, it's, a, it's an easy read, just not easy to apply, if that makes sense. So there's some really key themes that wind through this book. Things like trials and temptations, things like the way that we treat other people, things like money and poverty, things like not showing favoritism. But a lot of it just keeps coming back to this idea of wisdom, which is why um, Ben sort of named the whole series this idea of wisdom to live well. And and what is wisdom? I've kind of defined it um, as I mulled through this over the last little while as the ability to apply knowledge and experience and instruction to live well. It's not the knowing, 
It's our ability to apply what we know. We all know that we've got more access to knowledge now than anyone has ever had, right? There is so much information. For somebody who likes to devour content, that's really addictive for me. I can listen to all the podcasts. I can read all the books. But that does nothing for me if I do nothing with that. And we can kid ourselves that by taking in the stuff that we've learned the lesson and that we've done anything with it. And we can all just get a whole lot of knowledge and a whole lot of not much else. And that doesn't look like Jesus. So wisdom is our ability to apply that to change our lives. It's so crucial. And we all know that we've got all this information these days. But would you agree with me that our culture is as isolated and as anxious and as fearful and as fractured as it's probably ever been? Right? So the, the knowledge when not used, you know, is, is useless. But we've got this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit who brings wisdom into our lives. And when I say to live well, or when we say to live well, we're not talking about to live comfortably or to live cushy or to live, like Anna was talking about a couple of weeks ago, hashtag blessed, right? We're not talking about that sort of thing. We're talking about the sort of living well that says, as the old hymn writer said, it is well with my soul no matter what is going on. And if you know the story behind that hymn, well, like he just lost his family. And he's saying, it is well with my soul. I don't know if I could say that. We're talking about the type of wisdom to live well, that here's the answer at the end of our life, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the sort of living well that I want to have. Now, does God bless us? Of course he does. It's like a God-breathed life is an awesome, awesome thing. But like... In this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is what Jesus tells us. So, the book of James. Who is James? Um, he starts off the book by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a few different Jameses mentioned in the New Testament, but all reliable New Testament scholars will point you in the direction that this is the half-brother of Jesus. I say half-brother because same mum, different dad. Um, he had God as his dad. Jesus did, I mean. Um, and James grew up in, uh, you know, it would have been a, a devoutly Jewish family. And actually, um, sometimes people, uh, you know, we just miss this sort of stuff. Jesus had quite a large family. So there were five boys in the family. There was Jesus. There was James. His name was actually Jacob, but that's a whole different story. We'd go with James, but I'm not going to get into that one. Um, uh, there was Joseph. There was Judah. There was Simeon. And it also makes reference in the Gospels at one point to the sisters, so there was at least two of those, because they were plural. So Jesus was part of a family of at least seven kids. And if tradition's anything to go by, we assume that Joseph died off. Died off? That sounds, that sounds like he's a species. Died reasonably early. And so this would have been a family with a single mother with seven children in a fairly oppressive Roman-ruled Roman society. So they were a family under stress. And a family depending on God from early on. And we don't know a great deal about what happened in the middle, you know, before Jesus' ministry. But what we do know is that pre-crucifixion, through the life of Jesus, his brothers and his sisters did not follow him. Only his mum did. They all, we can assume, I think, would have been quite embarrassed by him. They were going, this is just Jesus. Like, we've, we've seen you, mate. We, we know where you came from. And these claims you're making are, are, are crazy. They, they didn't follow him and they even tried to bring him home to his responsibilities as the eldest sibling at one point and he did not come. Jesus was good at being stubborn when it needed to be that way. Um, but, and we, we can assume, I think, that 
they still weren't followers of his even at the cross because what we see as Jesus is dying at one point, he leaned down and he said to John, one of his best friends, he said, this is your mother and mother, this is your son. He was leaving John with the job of looking after his mum. So the family had all but, you know, left them alone. But then what we do see is only 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, the book of Acts tells us that James and the other brothers, they're all in the inner circle of disciples and they were there in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell. That's a big 180. They went from being this fractured group to being in the inner circle and waiting. Now, what happened there? What causes a turnaround that big? They saw the resurrected Christ. Isn't it such a message for us in that, that we can be right in the midst of Jesus and not see it because of, because of familiarity? They're going, that's just Jesus. How often can we be sitting there or going about our lives and we're going, I'm just, you know, this is just the normal. And Jesus is going, I'm right in front of you. Like the guys on the, you know, when, when, when Jesus had resurrected and he's on the road with the guys and they're talking to him all afternoon and they don't realize it's Jesus until he opens their eyes to it. We need to see the risen Christ. So this is this huge 180 that happens. And James goes on to become the chief elder of the church in Jerusalem. And he probably held that role for somewhere around two decades. We don't know exactly. Um, And it's during that period of time that the book of James is written. We think the book of James is actually our earliest New Testament document that we've got, which is pretty cool. We're reading like, you know, some of the earliest stuff that we've got written somewhere between 44 and 48. Um, And James had that. You're probably looking at the slide going, old camel knees. Where the heck is he going with this? A, A number of sources of Christian tradition you know, after this period, tell us that James had the nickname Old Camel Knees. And I had some bad nicknames in my day. There's some nice ones too. One of my cousins spent an entire Christmas holidays once calling me Keg because he told me I was as round as I was tall. I was pretty chubby. Um, but I didn't have a nickname as bad as Old Camel Knees. But the reason why James went by the nickname Old Camel Knees was because he had spent so much time devoted to prayer for the church that his knees were covered in gross calluses. That's the sort of leader you want to follow. Someone whose life is just devoted to praying for the church. Old camel knees. It's a bit of a shocker. And then as far as we know, he was martyred in 62 AD, um, like most of the early you know, leaders of the church were at different points, either by being stoned to death or thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and clubbed to death. So it was, um, it was a pretty full-on thing for him to go to but he had no he had no other choice to make where like like peter says where else would we go you have the words of life you know he he'd seen the resur- the resurrected christ so he knew where he was going and the book of james was written to um a fairly large group james tells us if you want to go to the next slide kurt james tells us um it says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations greetings so the 12 tribes is referring to israel and a huge amount of the Jewish Christians had been spread through the Roman Empire by this point because of persecution. Persecution under Herod Agrippa, and they'd spread out through that kind of general Syria and, and abroad um, sort of region. So this letter's going out to those people to basically share how we apply this wisdom in our lives. So that's kind of a bit of an intro to the book of James. If you want some more detail on that, watch the Bible Project's intro video to the book of James. It is really good. Uh, Another book I recommend really strongly just to pick up and read is um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart, which is a very well-known book. Let's just take a moment to pray, and then we're going to dive into chapter 1. 
Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have the words of life. Not us, not our ideas. You have the words of life. Where else would we go? Where else would we go for wisdom? So we just pray, Jesus, that you would speak to each of our hearts today, Lord God, that we would not just learn some stuff, but we would be changed from the inside out, that our lives would be transformed, that we would walk out of this building more like you than the way that we walked in. We thank you that you are in it with us. You're not just watching. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so let's start um, in James chapter 1. He starts off in verse 2, just like I said, bam, straight into it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay, what? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Like, are you out of your mind, James? Like, the last thing I want to do in a trial is to consider it joy. That's a terrible idea. That sounds horrible. And it can seem glib and just completely lacking in empathy to say something like that. It's like somebody comes up and pours out their heart to you about this thing you're going through, and you're going, consider it joy. Like, that just, I hate it when people do that. It feels so, so shallow. But this is somebody who knew trials. And this is what he's telling us. What sort of trials are you talking about? Well, well, many kinds. Obviously, a lot of these people were under economic stress and under persecution and things like that. But this applies to us now too. This is when you've lost your job and you've been to multiple job interviews and you, you, you can't find anything. This is when you're grieving the loss of a family member. This is when you've gone through that fifth round of unsuccessful IVF. This is when the business that you've been pouring years and years of work into goes under. This is when you get a health diagnosis that, you know, has no other way out. This is, this is like as bad as it gets. And he's still saying this. So why is he saying consider it pure joy? Well, firstly, because it doesn't come naturally to us at all. But there's nothing good about these things, right? Like these trials, those things I've just mentioned. Like God doesn't hand out cancer. God's not trying to destroy your life. So, so what's going on here? Well, consider, it's a verb of thought, not a verb of emotion, all right? James is telling us how to feel, not, sorry, James isn't telling us how to feel about our trials. He's telling us how to think about them. It's on the next slide there, Kurt. It means that we have to make the effort to think about the trial differently, to do it as an exercise, to practice it and to mull it over, to rethink what we're going through. To repent means to rethink. Change the way that we think. And joy doesn't mean happiness. This isn't fake it till you make it. One of my favorite bands is a band called Paramore and they have a song called Fake Happy and it kind of captures that idea, right? Just like she talks about painting her lipstick wider than her mouth so nobody can see her, her frowning. Um, it's that sort of, it's, it's not that sort of thing. He's not saying you have to enjoy your suffering. And some religions kind of go with this idea, right? You'll see people doing kind of really sadistic things to themselves to suffer and trying to remove all emotion from that because that brings them to a place of enlightenment or oneness or whatever else. This is not what he's talking about. But joy instead, godly joy, if you move to the next one, Kurt, joy is a state of deep, steady contentment and thankful trust in God. 
that's different to happiness. That's what we're being called to. This is what allows Paul to say in Philippians 4, I've learned the secret of being content in all things, whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry, whether I've got stuff or whether I don't have stuff, whether I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing a bit. But basically in every circumstance, I've, I've got joy. How do we do this? This is so hard, right? Like I'm preaching to myself. This has been a super convicting message to work on. But we have this choice in our lifetime right now to do something we will never be able to do the other side of eternity. And that's to make a choice to worship God despite our circumstances. In heaven, we won't have that problem. It'll be really easy to worship God. It'll be like involuntary because everything will be amazing. But right now, we have a choice to rejoice. We have a choice to... I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but there you go. We have the ability to... Turn our hearts to God when it hurts, when it doesn't make sense. As one of the commentators said, as I was reading for this, to consider trials as an occasion for joy involves an act of faith. We have to engage faith to be able to do this. Rachel and I had, uh, and I might talk about it more one day, but Rachel and I had a, a pretty long journey of infertility and, and more than five years of desperately wanting kids and a whole lot of different stuff that went along with that and, and that involved a, a pretty long IVF journey and we sort of, I think it was maybe the, the seventh full collection and round of IVF when we eventually fell pregnant with Judah and Zoe and that sort of thing and it was so incredibly painful um, and we didn't always deal with that well. I'm not saying we always took joy in our circumstances, not at all. But it did force us to turn our eyes to God and to make the choice to praise him despite what we were going through. And at that point in time, we used to lead worship at, a, at our church every Friday night. And, you know, turning up on a Friday night after we just had another negative result was the last thing we felt like doing. But it was the best thing for our souls. It was what we had to do. And we always found joy in that. We found joy in Jesus. And he talks here about the... Um, Oh, no, I just skipped forward. Yeah, so to consider it pure joy, this is um, the next slide, Kurt. To consider it pure joy is to think through the trial to a place of deep, thankful trust in God because he is making us whole. Not looking at the trial, but asking God to help us look through the trial. Using faith to look through the trial to what God is going to do in it. This is the process of the testing of our faith. He talks about the testing of our faith in this, in this little section here. And that's the process of a silversmith getting the silver, melting it down till it's like scorching, scorching hot, then collecting all the slag off the top, all the dross, and then melting it again, and then collecting all the dross off the top, and then melting it again. Why are they putting that silver through that process? Because it is being refined. And it gets refined until when? I was reading about this. The silversmiths would refine it until they could look down and see their own reflection back in the silver. I was like, whew. That's what Jesus is doing. He's refining us until he can look down and then he sees his reflection back in us. Felicity sent me a video last night that was, it was really good. And this guy was talking about how God's more interested in our development than our comfort. As I was sitting on that and I was praying through it and I felt God kind of going, actually, can we take it up a a notch there? God's more interested in my Christ-likeness than my comfort. God's more interested in your Christ-likeness than your comfort. 
It's really painful, but it's so true. And he is refining us until we're mature and complete. Some of your Bibles might render that until we're perfect. And I look at that and I'm like, oh, well, I'm never going to hit that point. That's not actually what he's talking about. He's talking about all the fractured pieces of us coming together and being made whole. That's the point that he's bringing us to. Instead of a life where we're, you know, we're this person around these people and this person around these people and we've got this fractured life, God wants us to be integrated, whole, every part of our life made whole in him. And that takes maturity. And maturity, I think, is that point where our beliefs and our actions actually are congruent. They line up. This is not easy stuff that we're talking about. But this is what we're being called to. And I think a lot of the shaking up that's been happening in the church in the last few years is the church being made more mature. God refining us. God burning off a whole lot of unnecessary nonsense and pointing us at Jesus. Because the world can see through all of the rubbish. They're not stupid. People want authentic. Our lives need to be authentic. But getting us to that point. It involves some burning. If we look at the heroes of the faith, even in just the last century or so, right? Martin Luther King, or look at someone like Corrie ten Boom, or like Brother Andrew, or like Mother Teresa, right? What do these lives have in common? Trials. Now, did they have lives of joy? Yes, you read their books. These were people of extreme joy, but not extreme joy because of their circumstances. It was extreme joy in spite of their circumstances. That's what I want. That's a goal, not to have a cushy life. I want to learn to be content when my life sucks from an outside perspective. My life doesn't suck, but you know what what I mean. But I mean, the the last four years for me, people that are close to me, the last four years for me have actually been extremely difficult because of a a couple of health things. And I'm often struggling for breath. Um, And I'm not going to go into that, but it's taken my joy in a lot of things and, and, and impacted sort of every aspect of my life. But learning to find joy in that is, I think, what is happening. Now, do I think God did that to me? No, I don't. This is the, 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 the puzzle that we live in. But I know God is using it. He's going to make all things work together for good. Doesn't mean he's making everything happen, but he's going to make it work together for good. Um, people who know me well know that I hate winter. I'm a chicken in the cold. An absolute chicken in the cold. I shiver. I whinge. I love the warmth. People yesterday at soccer going, oh, it's so hot. I was like, finally, this is good. I'm enjoying feeling sweaty for once. I know I'm weird. I hate the cold. You'll always see me wearing a beanie up here when no one else is. Other people are in shorts. Joel DeHaan's wearing a singlet all year. And I'm there. There he is. And I'm there. You know, I hate the cold and I hate winter. And when I feel winter coming, I'm like, no, three months of this nonsense. But you know nature needs winter? We can't live in a state of perpetual spring and summer. Plants can't work that way. We, we need winter. Many seeds rely on winter. The moisture freezes and then it expands the seed and it helps break it out of its hard shell so that it can then sprout in the, sum, in the spring and the summer. And this is something God told me a couple of years ago when I was really struggling one night and, and praying to him. And he said, God, winter... He said, God, I'm not God. He said, Rob... Winter is never wasted, not in nature and not in you. And I felt him bring that back to me as I was prepping for this, to say that over you. Winter is never wasted, not in nature and not in you. If you are in winter right now, it will not be wasted. 
It is not for nothing. It might look dry, maybe not so much dry, but frozen and barren and lacking in life. That's true. It might be really painful right now. It will not be wasted. God is doing something to break that seed out of its hard shell. And these verses that we've been reading here so far, they don't claim to teach that everything that happens to us is somehow good and therefore a reason for rejoicing. But instead, that if we let God work through those events, he will produce good, lasting good. So my first like main point here, you're going first one, he's only just getting there. We'll speed up from here, it's all right. My first main point here is, number one, look through your trial to future wholeness. God, help us look through our trial to future wholeness. The next part of, of this chapter, if we can move on, Kurt, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, lost and lost, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Where is our wisdom coming from? It can come from so many places. Like I said, I listen to a lot of podcasts, both Christian ones and just different things because I like learning. I can get wisdom from them, but I can become too dependent on them. It could be from self-help books, could be from counselors, could be from mentors. All these things are awesome, right? Make use of them, no problem. As long as we don't become independent. Like Dr. Ray said last week, we can't be independent. We must be dependent on God. Our wisdom has to come back to him because all of those other sources of wisdom, they are finite. They might be good, but they're finite. They will run out. God's wisdom cannot run out. And he says that he'll give generously to all without finding fault. He's talking about what? Giving generously wisdom to all. Not just the good people, but to all without finding fault. And what's this wisdom for? It's wisdom for being able to consider our trials joy. For actually being able to do that really difficult point one. We need his wisdom to be able to do that. When I ask him for wisdom, I'm really trusting his goodness to provide. It's a question of who I think God is. It's that, it's that question, could you be this good? Could you really be this good? Every trial is a question of us going, can you really be this good, God? And this little section here where... It, uh, that, that verse we read just a moment ago, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. It's the earliest known use of the term double-minded. That, that term was only found in Christian literature to the end of the second century. And it literally means two-souled. Dipsychos, to be two-souled. It's the character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress who, would, who was called Mr. Facing Both Ways, if you've ever read that book. But I think it's a really good picture of it. Mr. Facing Both Ways. We can find ourselves going, yeah, the world and Jesus, and I'll have some both, please. It's not going to work. To partly depend on God and partly depend on the world is to destabilize ourselves completely. We've got to trust God for wisdom. And I think it's actually really important in this to like listen out for when God most clearly speaks for us and pay attention to us. I know for me, um, I've learned to really carefully pay attention to what thoughts come into my mind while I'm worshipping because it's when I'm sort of most focused and most calibrated if you want to think of it that way I'm, I'm back in I've got things back in order and some of the most clear directions in my life God has given me in worship 
you know, if I've been at a do I go here or do I go there? It's kind of like, I'll wait till I've been worshipping for a while and then I'll see what I think about that. Listen to what God says to you in the worship. What thoughts come into your mind? You might go, oh, I'm distracted. I should just be worshipping. No, maybe God's talking to you about something. Let's move on. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. See, I'm a school teacher and I test students regularly. I'm not testing them hoping that they'll fail. I'm testing them so that they can prove to themselves that they can pass and so that they can grow. See, if I test you, I'm hoping you'll pass. If I tempt you, I'm hoping you'll fail. God tests. He doesn't tempt. God does test. He doesn't tempt. Jesus in the trial of the desert is a really good example of this. Where does Jesus get led to? The wilderness. Who by? The Holy Spirit. To be tested. But while he's there, he's tempted by the devil. When we're in the place of trials is when we are so vulnerable to the temptations. And we have to be aware of that. And a trial can turn into a temptation when we turn to blaming God. God, this thing that I'm going through, this is, a, this is your fault. Why didn't you? You could have. It's so easy to blame our sins on him or to blame our sins on anything else, our genetics. My family has a long history of blah, blah, blah. I'm an alcoholic because my three you know, generations before me were. Or my culture did this to me or my something. Okay, all of those things are really, really hard and they're, I'm not you know, invalidating them. But it says here we are dragged away by our own evil desire. We have to take responsibility for this. Dallas Willard, an amazing author, um, said, this is on the next slide, Kurt. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, but effort is an action. It takes effort to overcome temptation. You go, effort? No, I'm not meant to be striving. No, you're not meant to be striving for God's love. But he does also talk in Hebrews at one point about, you have not yet found yourself striving to the point of shedding blood in overcoming sin. So it's like, well, yeah, there's, there's some effort and action needed here to overcome. God isn't tempting you. It's really important for us to know. And there's some in this room right now having serious difficulties with, with temptation. It might be the temptation to put money above everything else. It might be pornography or infidelity in some way. It might be some sort of substance. It might be greed. It might be judgmentalism. It might be whatever else, right? We've all got our temptations. God is not tempting us. But we've got to ask ourselves, is his grace sufficient for us? And we can say, yes, his grace is sufficient for us. We have to depend on God for wisdom, but we have to take responsibility. Take responsibility. And then finally, in chapter one here, because again, like I said, we're only focusing on the trials and temptations kind of theme through this chapter. It says, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. You know, God only gives good gifts. And he is the source of all good gifts. And it's funny that he starts this, do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So how, so how can we be deceived? 
to be deceived here is to think that God isn't really good. A lot of the time, if I have a conversation with someone who tells me they don't believe in God, I want to ask, and a couple of times I have asked, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Because when people tell us about the God they don't believe in, I'm like, I don't believe in that God either. He sounds like a monster. I don't believe in that God. The God I believe in looks like Jesus. We know that from Hebrews. He's the exact representation of God's being. God looks like Jesus. He's always looked like Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, are we realizing that God is really good? Every trial and every temptation is a test of who we think God is. Could you be this good? If you're sick or you're lonely or you're fearful or you're addicted or you're broke or you're grieving or you're hopeless, the trial makes you ask, is God really good? But you pass the trial not by escaping the circumstance, but by trusting that God is good in that. So my fourth point here is to recall his goodness. We need to do this so often. Recall his goodness. He is good in every way. So what we're going to do for a minute here, and the band might start making their way up, I want to lead you guys through a little bit of a, a, little bit of a meditation, a little bit of a, you might go, oh, what are we doing here? Mm. No, um, I just mean like a little bit of a prayer, a little bit of sitting on an idea here, mulling on it for a minute. I'm just going to ask you some questions and, and, and just asking the Holy Spirit to reveal things to us. And we're going to worship in a little bit, but... Why don't you just take a moment, close your eyes if you're, if you're happy to do that. Maybe, you know, just posture yourself however you want to. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd just come and speak to us. That you'd just highlight to each person's heart what we need to hear. Lord, I pray the same for me. And just as I ask these questions, Lord, I pray that you would bring truth and wisdom and clarity to our hearts and our spirits. So my first question for you as you're sitting there with Jesus Picture him next to you. Picture him with you. Is what is your trial right now? And how could God lead you closer to wholeness and maturity through this? That might look really hard. Holy Spirit, we ask for your truth and your wisdom because we can't make sense of this. But God, How could you be making me whole through this trial? How are you refining me through this trial? Lord, we just ask that you'd show us a picture in our minds, in our hearts of what that looks like. We picture it in front of us now, Lord. We'd mull over it. We think through our trial to where you are taking us. This idea that you value, you you are interested in our Christ-likeness, even over our comfort. And we don't like that, God. Being honest, we don't like that but we want to be like you. So give us a picture now that we can put in front of us, just like Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Lord, I ask that you would show us the joy set before us, that we could endure, that we could be militantly patient. The second thing, trusting God for wisdom. I just want to ask you the question and have you think, where are you looking for wisdom right now? Where have you perhaps been leaning for wisdom in a place where that's going to run out or where it's not providing you with life and life to the full? 
And right now, Jesus, we just shift that and we put our feet back on the firm foundation that is you. We ask you for wisdom. We trust you to come good. Lord, we need wisdom to be able to see through our trial. You are wisdom, Lord. And the third thing, how are you being tempted right now? You might be tempted to even sit there and feel a bit self-righteous and thinking, I don't think there is anything, which is kind of temptation in itself. Or maybe there's a really obvious thing. You know all about it. It feels like a plank in your eye. Are you blaming God or something else? Are you taking responsibility? Lord, like David in Psalm 51, we say, Against you and you only have I sinned. We take responsibility for our sin. We take responsibility for our, our where, where temptation has got the better of us. And we thank you that you don't tempt us. But we take responsibility before you now, Lord God, and we ask you to lead us not into temptation as you taught us to pray. Lord, we ask, lead us not into temptation. And then finally, how has God shown his goodness to you? Recall it. Just right now, recall one instance. Don't try and call up a whole lot. Think of one instance and try and go back to that. Picture it in front of you, what it looked like, what it sounded like, what it felt like, how your spirit felt full of life. Knowing God's goodness. Use that as fuel. Don't be deceived into thinking that God is not good. But know that God looks like Jesus. Self-sacrificial, peaceful love. Lord, you are good in every way. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Amen. You know, a lot of us, I think it's very easy. We can be very easily tempted to live life like we're the main character in our own movie. I see this not only in my students, but in myself. Feeling like I'm the main character walking around. And then when things don't turn out like the movies, we don't know what to do. We honestly don't know what to do. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. And the kind of sucky thing about our movie is it's going straight to VHS. And give it a few more years and people won't even have a player that plays that thing back. You know, for most of us, sorry, it's just true, 50 or 100 years after our lives, most people on earth won't have known that we existed. And that could feel really flattening if we're the lead character in our own story. And it can feel like every trial and temptation we go through is for nothing. What a waste to go through all of this. But it is such a relief when we realize we are not the main character in this story. You and I, we are supporting cast. If I'm part of the supporting cast, a story that's been going way before me and a story that's going to go way after me, then every trial and temptation that I go through is not in vain. Because I'm part of this epic story, this epic saga of the story of Jesus redeeming the world. 
So everything that I go through, my discomfort and the crap, sorry, the the stuff that I go through, it is not a waste. I'm serving the story of Jesus. No trial and no test is done in vain. And if you're in here and you have been running your own show and you maybe never have thought about it being another way and you're going, yeah, it feels like it's all such a waste. It feels like it's all for nothing, all this stuff I go through. It doesn't look like what the movies tell me it was meant to look like. No, it doesn't. In this world, you will have trouble. But Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. He has, not us. If you've been the lead character of the story, and man, I'm talking to myself here too. Let's get out of that spotlight. Jesus, help us be the supporting cast. Jesus, if we let's just take a moment to pray here again. And if, if you've never prayed this before, this there might be a different way to do it, but but this could be your moment turning to Jesus. Jesus, we get off the throne of our own lives. We get off the throne of our own lives. We aren't the lead actor here. This isn't about us. Jesus, if I've been on my throne, if I've been running my life. I should invite you now to say to him in your heart, I'm hopping off, Jesus. I want you to be the lead here. I want to follow you. I want to be part of your story. For every sin that I've made, every temptation I've yielded to, Lord, I ask your forgiveness. And instead, I come to you. I come to the one whose yoke is easy and burden is light, and I lay my stuff down and I take up what you have purchased for me at the cross. I take real joy, deep, steady, contented joy, despite my circumstances in you. And I decide once again to follow you. To think through my trial, to ask you for wisdom, to take responsibility for my life before you, and to trust your goodness, Lord. We're going to spend a bit of time here singing to Jesus, singing of his goodness. There is no better way, I think, that we can wrap this up than to declare his goodness over our lives. So we're going to sing out goodness of God here, and then I'll just pop up at the end um, and close the service. But I'll leave it with you guys here. Let's just sing of how good he is. Thank you, Lord.